This episode of the Post-Christianity Podcast is sponsored by The Good Book Company, publisher of Future Proof by Stephen McAlpine. Stephen McAlpine is an Australian writer and speaker who specializes in cultural engagement and the church. In his new book, Future Proof, coming February 2024, Stephen encourages readers that we have been given everything we need in Christ to thrive in a post-Christian cultural landscape. Visit thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast to find this book and other resources that will help you engage with the culture in a thoughtful and biblical way. And use code POST at checkout to receive 25% off. That's thegoodbook.com slash postpodcast. If I had to pinpoint what is my, what is the thing about Sunday morning that most gets me it's looking around the church at people whose lives i know and whose struggles i know and whose stories i know watching them worship is so powerful because i can i'm like i know where you've come from i know where you were even like a few years ago i sat with you and you were crying last week like to have that sense so that the vertical and the horizontal dimension are all just like smushed up together in a way that they're only going to get more smushed up in the new creation right as we together are jesus's bride seeing that beautiful expression of god with us in the faces of my brothers and sisters is perhaps my favorite thing about church Hello and welcome to Post-Christianity. My name is Glenn Scrivener. And I'm Andrew Wilson. Uh, we are thinking about our post-Christian moment, how we got here, and what we do about it. And we're thrilled to be joined by Rebecca McLaughlin, whoop, all whoop. the way from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Hello, hello, hello. Uh, now, we've just filled you in a little bit on where the podcast has been. Uh, we have done a history of the world. Uh, Stopping off uh, quite a bit in terms <laughs> That was episode one. <laughs> History of the World, already covered. Ridiculously Love it. uppity title. <laughs> we got to 1770. We spent quite a bit of time in 1776. Uh, and so that's the focus of Andrew's book as, as the invention of the, of the modern world, remaking our world. Um, and we've thought a little bit about Air We Breathe Type Things, which is my book, and Compassion and Equality and consent and freedom and kindness and all those sorts of things and how Christianized we already are. And we've sort of got a little working definition of post-Christianity. I I like Andrew's kind of analogy of it's like post-industrial because it's Mm. been forever shaped by industrialization. It doesn't necessarily mean we're all going up chimneys and, and working at mill, but we have been forever shaped by this thing and cannot wind the clock back and cannot, um, cannot be anything other than a kind of a branch on this tree uh, that has happened. Uh, and so here we are in this post-Christian moment. Uh, you have lived uh, a lot of your life in the US now, but uh, grew up in the UK and you're ministering in a context in which people are thinking very deeply about our culture and our, our cultural moment. So... How do you navigate this this question? We're we're really trying to bring it into land in the series. Uh, so what? Even mm. if we get the the pin in the map about uh, where our culture is, uh, what does that mean for the Church of Jesus Christ to live fr- faithfully and fruitfully today? Mm. I think it's really easy for people to hear even the term post Christian. I know you guys have done a lot of interesting work in thinking about what that doesn't and doesn't mean, and think that what that means is is the church is in decline on the back foot woe is me um batten down the hatches at best try and hold on to our kids certainly not out there 
um, <clears throat> knocking on knocking on doors, uh, <laughs> gathering people in, and uh, calling them to repent and believe. I actually think that we are very much in a place where, as the Lord put it, the harvest is plentiful, um, and the workers are only somewhat few. So. It, I, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, in case listeners are not familiar, is not the Bible Belt in America. You know, this is this in American terms is one of the most post-Christian, and the particular kind of Christian that the Northeast is is post, at least in sort of more recent memory, is is more kind of post-Catholic. I think there's, there's quite a lot of um, sort of historically Catholic families um, here. You know, relative to other parts my husband's from Oklahoma which is proper Bible Belt and where most people if they're post-Christian are kind of post-Baptist I suppose um, in flavour and what I'm increasingly struck by is just the spiritual openness actually around me here and the fact that some of the most basic Christian the, the, the most basic things that Christians have always been called to do are in many ways the things that Christians are called to do now, um, inviting people into our homes, inviting people to church, um, asking questions to understand what people, what individuals believe and why, um, to, to get to know them, to have a real interest in their lives. And even just in the last week, I've had the opportunity to talk with people from a whole range of backgrounds. You know, a friend raised Jewish in California who is seriously considering the Christian faith, um, young woman with, raised with no Christian background who's been coming to our community group and you know, very, very much on, on the edge of repenting and believing. A, a woman who l randomly walked into our church building yesterday when I happened to be meeting um, with one of the pastors and, a, and another friend um, who wanted to pick up some furniture that we'd left out for anyone to pick up, you know, stuff we didn't need anymore. And on the way out, I said, oh, would you like us to help move the furniture? She said, yeah. I said, we're here every Sunday. Would you like to come? And she said, yeah, she, you know, I've, I've been thinking about coming to church, but I've, I've driven past this church, but I've never kind of taken the step. Great. Come on Sunday. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. just the, even, even just in the last 24 hours, as I say, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, not the Bible Belt, so much opportunity for people who who just need an invitation often and an invitation, a relationship, a, a, an ongoing um, an ongoing invitation that isn't only come to church on Sunday, but maybe also come to our Bible study, come and have dinner, come just like a a kind of come and see welcome that gives people space to to hear about Jesus. Sorry, I'm like going kind of. No, this is all this is pretty, I, I think here, you're absolutely right. But, I think I think that it's fascinating to think that for all the analysis that I think you. you I think telling the story about what, how we got to where we are, I hope is very helpful. The reason I find it helpful is because I understand people better when I'm talking to them. Mm. But actually the fundamentals of what you do, praying for people, inviting people to church, having meals with people, asking in good questions, taking opportunities to share, being bold when you need to, basically the, the, the same sorts of things that Christians have had to do in every generation. And I just mm. think that's, I think instinctively should probably resonate with all Christians going, of course, the same things Jesus said. Are, I, love, I love the way you framed it. Like, well, I've come to believe that what the Lord said is true. And obviously those who don't agree are not with the Lord. I thought it was like... But, it, it's um, tricky it's because, of course, Jesus was talking at a particular time and in a particular place. So what he said then was absolutely and unquestionably true then. I just increasingly feel like it's actually true now. And... Uh, 
I'm also I've I've been thinking more and more about when when um you know disciples haven't caught any fish and Jesus says cast them out the other side and then there are so many fish that the boat is going to be overflowing and I actually think if we Christians or those of us who are Christians don't know who's listening um if you're a Christian who's listening if we actually jumped in as workers I think our boats don't have the capacity for the number of fish like I think actually that's I think that's our problem not the fact that the fish have all swum away and there's absolutely no way we could ever reach them I think it's actually we've got to sling our nets and if one slings a net I'm not really a fisher lady so I don't know if one swing, slings you know nets. what that's astounding Rebecca because when I think of you <laughs> I think of you out there in Nova fish Scotia wife. fingers just you know. could you talk about that then so when you let's just go into that when you say oh I think it's the it's the lack of capacity we may mm. have mm. for fish rather than the fish have all swum away I really like that image what do you mean by that talk a bit more about that I mean, I mean a number of things. Number one, I mean, um, and I, I just finished reading a, a, a book by um, our, our friend Mike Graham um, on titled "The Great Dechurching," which is looking at the phenomenon of like you know millions of people, even just in the last twenty-five years in America in particular, who were going to church now not going to church. And typically, when we hear that kind of headline, we think, "Oh, that's because they've completely like they are so far from the Lord. They've just like walked out of the door, and nothing is going to bring them back." Hashtag evangelical. Evangelical, kind of and actually, the, he, sort of, yeah. the, the book even has a category of like evangelicals. In, in actual fact, the the majority of these people would come back next Sunday if somebody just invited them. Yeah, like if somebody they that's if so they had a positive connection with somebody who said, "Hey, come to church with me next Sunday." they would come hmm. so so we have millions of people who have walked out of the church for whatever reason a, a lot of them uh, kind of casually do church in the sense of they moved to a new place or something happened they just like n- didn't mean to stop going to church but they did and covid is obviously like a big disruptor of, of that um so th- so there are all these people who who used to go to church and don't but actually not for any particularly good reason <laughs> really um who, who need to be welcomed in and then there's all the people who've grown up one way or another without uh, uh, without the, the christian faith or, or without any meaningful understanding of like who they are in the world um how they might relate to god what this means for others who are who are lonely um who are who are floundering um i don't i'm not i don't want to make that sound sort of con- contemptuous but who who have been told the way to human happiness and flourishing is for you to figure out exactly who you are looking you know deep in your in yourself find out your unique identity and like actualizing that is what is going to lead to your happiness and fulfillment turns out it's a total disaster um and so there are all these people who are actually you know hungry um for the lord uh, who are seeking who are seeking spiritual fulfillment through you know yoga or mindfulness or like all, all all the things that that people reach for which aren't you know bad in of themselves necessarily but just but when they have that kind of spiritual dimension they're trying you know they're trying to meet a need that people have and and we under the lord we have the words of eternal life mm-hmm. for these people and um the the folks who who i've had the privilege of connecting with like as i say even in the last few days and weeks and months one of the comments a couple of them made is like i have never seen community like this you know i've never seen just a group of people who come from all over the world i mean the place where i live in cambridge is very sort of uh, cosmopolitan just because a lot of people move here for college and whatever 
It's people from you know from China and from um, Iran and and from um, Turkey and from Ghana and from Nigeria and from like all over the place. Korea um, coming together uh, around Jesus and eating together and laughing together and and playing together and just like community. <laughs> um, and this is incredibly attractive to people. This is this is what people are, are hungering for. Um, I mean, I remember a few years ago talking with a, a friend who um, had been raised in an Orthodox Jewish home and then had sort of very much lost her faith in college and lived for many years, um, you know, outside of any kind of faith tradition. And and I was describing her, you know, what do we do on a Tuesday evening, like our Bible study? And I was like, yeah, you know, we get together, we share uh, some snacks we we chat we read the bible together and then we get into small groups and pray for each other and she was like oh that sounds lovely <laughs> you know not not like yeah yeah no actual belief in in god whatever and she was like that sounds like a really lovely tuesday evening and a kind of wistfulness i wish like i would like something like that in my life right yeah um, there's such hunger for that yeah such hunger yeah, I, we we spoke in a previous episode about are we in a post-truth moment? And Andrew, you made the point we're we're really in a post-trust moment. Mm. And it's not just that you know church membership is declining; all membership of all societies, all all corporate identity is absolutely shrinking, and and mm. those numbers are tanking a- across the board. But that that leads to the the kind of hunger that you're talking about, and a real opportunity for what does thick community look like, and and where do you where do you have community that is across boundaries, that mm. is across yeah. distinctives of, yeah. of age, yeah. for instance, yeah. and of race and of class. Yeah. Um, the church has such an opportunity. Well, and here's the thing. I think it's easy for us if we are Christians and if if we go to church regularly to think that church on a Sunday should be uh, um, comfortable and that it shouldn't be too much work. Like, you know, we go there to be encouraged, to hear a sermon, to see our friends, to be, you know, buoyed up by by the experience. And, And none of that is bad in and of itself. I'm increasingly convinced that actually on a Sunday morning, those of us who are followers of Jesus need to be like working, but we need to be intentionally seeking out the people who don't have friends yet. Um, maybe because they don't fit in sociologically with most of the other people in the room, maybe because they're new, maybe because they're a single mother, maybe because they're much older or much younger or whatever it is and start conversations. And, and the reality is it's much easier to talk to somebody if either you know them very well already or you have a very similar background. Um, it's it's meaningfully hard work to talk to somebody who is from a very different place, either kind of geographically or just socially. Um, and it can feel awkward. You're trying to think, well, what will be a good question to ask them? I don't relate to their life circumstances very well. It's just, it's hard work. Right? Um, and I think that's what we need to be doing on a Sunday because otherwise what's happening and this is where I think the um the the boat is our boats aren't big enough or they're not um doing they're not doing their job sufficiently every Sunday in our church which is a lovely kind of little um southern baptist church funnily enough in New England and um, people walk in for whatever reason a- and it might be um they were raised Catholic, hadn't been to church in a decade, and then something happened in their life. They thought they just sort of tried church, but they didn't want to go back to a Catholic church. Or maybe, um, you know, they drifted away from church some time ago. They thought they'd come back. Or maybe they're just, you know, somebody from the neighborhood who just thought, you know what, I'm going to try, like, walking into that church. They come in, they sit by themselves, they walk out. 
and and we miss like week after week we miss the opportunity to reach the people who have literally walked through our door like our physical building <laughs> um we miss them and and we we may be thinking oh i would love to to pluck up the courage to reach out to a colleague or to like you know pound the streets um calling people to jesus those are both really good things but we're actually missing even the people like the fish who have literally swum into our building we're letting them slip through the net sorry i'm a little bit um no, I'm just chuckling to myself about the use of the word literally in the sentence. The fish who have literally swum into our <laughs> That's extremely pedantic you know and I'm I very mean. sorry. Indefensible because you make a really, really important point. Um, but that's what it was. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I was struck as well by the, the figures that Mike Graham shares about de-churching yeah, really and just how many millions of Americans, like, they, they, they may have left institutional religion, they may have left the church, but they, they've left all sorts of institutions, actually, and, and everyone is kind of retreating into themselves, and yeah. they just need Unions, to be invited. clubs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that translates to the UK as well. So for our UK listeners, um, the Talking Jesus survey uh, was in 2015 and again in 2022. And no matter how many times I tell Christians in this country, um, like how open people are to invitations to the church and how mm. open people are to Christians and how absolutely positive they are towards A, Jesus and B, Christians, no Christian wants to believe it. Because mm. everyone's like, oh, they just needed to survey my friends. You know, my friends think mm. I'm an idiot. Well, well like, why, why are you their friend? I don't know. Like, like, what's, what's, what's wrong with you? But, but it's like, again and again, the Talking Jesus survey, and, and they've done this properly with a you know, sample size of about 3,000 you know, non-Christians and, and asking them, um, even when they're asked, do you think Christians are, for instance, homophobic? And, mm. and maybe like 8% or less, you know, when they're offered the chance to, okay, here are a whole bunch of positive things and they're busy ticking all the positive things about, you know, the Christians that they know. And would you, would you talk, you know, would you say that Christians are bigoted? Not, not so much. Would you say they're homophobic? Not so much. Um, they might be a little narrow. They might be a little um, superstitious or something. You know, they, they, they'd, have, they'd have certain kind of phrases for Christians, but... It's not the it's not the the defeaters that we we think mm. Christians have non Christians have with us, and I just, I just feel like we are disqualifying ourselves from outreach by thinking the world hates us or thinking the world is more distant from our message mm. than it might might well be, and that suits us because we're lazy. <laughs> it suits us. Well, I, we, I yeah. think it, I think it's partly that we're lazy and partly that we are fearful, and 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 I understand that. Um, it's funny, a few weeks ago, um, I gave a little talk on evangelism at, at my church and um, it was not trying to say all that there is to be said about evangelism, but I always like to have like four points that people are actually going to remember. And see so if I can remember them, my first point is that evangelism, evangelism is hard. Um, second point is that evangelism is hospitable. Um, third point is that evangelism is hopeful. That was actually the fourth point, so I've clearly forgotten what the third point is. Um, Heliocentric? <laughs> I'm going to guess it began with an H. <laughs> it did begin with an H. You're a genius. Really like absolute that. genius. Um, I really hard, want to know what, what it is, it? because hard, that's a great message. Uh, heretical? Me. Was it heretical? It wasn't no, heretical. No, okay. but, but one of the friends who'd come was um, you know, not non-Christian, um, who yeah, has been exploring Christianity with us. And, and she, whenever I see her, she sort of rehearses these points to me. Um, uh, it sort of kind of makes me laugh, because... Um, you know her background is one where you would imagine that she would be one of the people who would make evangelism hard and actually she's you know loves to to be in these kinds of conversations but i think i think we need to know that it's hard it is vulnerable even inviting somebody to something and, and the possibility that they'll, they'll say no is 
like that's taking a, a risk. Um, oh, humble. Evangelism is a humble. humble. That's the one. Nice. Evangelism is hard. Evangelism is humble. Evangelism is hospitable. And evangelism is hopeful. Um, we need to be ready for the hard. We need to be okay with being rejected, which is why we need brothers and sisters with us because I'm puny. Like I'm, I'm all fragile and puny and um, I, I'm not, I, I will struggle to put myself out there um, in bold evangelism if I don't have brothers and sisters to come home to. Yes. Or to go with. But um, I think it's important to yeah. figure out the shape of what's hard about mm. evangelism too. Um, because again, one one way that we might disqualify ourselves from evangelism is by thinking it's hard intellectually, and I don't mm. have all the answers, mm. and so it's it's best not to try, sort of thing. Mm. Or it's hard because most of my friends will just think I'm a bigot and a homophobe, and therefore it's not worth trying. So I'm I'm fully on board with thinking like it's hard because it's vulnerable. Mm. Absolutely. It's it's hard to be hospitable. It's it's hard to open your life out to other people. It's hard to name the name of Jesus in a conversation. It, it can feel like a sort of sack of rocks just, you know, landing mm. on the dinner table. That that's <laughs> that's kind of right. Andrew's just gonna laugh at our analogies all I'm just gonna laugh at your verbal typos, but I'm not gonna laugh at analogies. Isn't that great? <laughs> So do you see what I mean like like mm. I think I think it absolutely is hard and rejection is hard and 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 just being vulnerable and opening ourselves out and 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 intentionally leaving space in our lives so that we can you know be open to people and open to relationships and and that sort of thing and and inviting people to things and and they might reject us they might not having conversations with people and it gets awkward but, but i i just i just wonder whether we should press into like what in particular makes it hard because i i do feel like christians can disqualify themselves from evangelism thinking it's the wrong kind of hard yeah i think that's absolutely right it is certainly the case i mean i i not infrequently find myself in conversations where it is hard in, in that sense of um pretty deep disagreement that uh, requires I mean it's my day job to um, think about these things so I tend to have I, you know I'm probably more equipped than the average person just because I have the privilege of spending you know all day long thinking about the objections to Christianity and how one might address them but I, I understand why it feels intimidating to people but I think this is where the the hard and the humble can um, can help each other because uh, the, the last thing the, the last thing we want to do if we're sharing the gospel is to come across as if we are sort of self-righteous and have it all together because we're actually kind of undermining the gospel if that's what we're if that's what we're communicating and it's sometimes what people are primed to hear us as saying um, so I think it's okay to say when you know I don't know I'm actually not sure that's a really good question I, I don't know the answer I'd love to um, I'd love to look into that more and, and get back to you I think actually having the the humility to say that at times is helpful and and as you as you point out actually many people are much more positively disposed to all these conversations than, than we might think mm -hmm. um they're eager for for deeper conversations about meaning and truth and love and and flourishing um and they're they're intrigued actually um by people who who seem to be orienting their lives around yes jesus like yes. it's it's intriguing yeah and i think i think the more we scatter seed more widely 
it, it is true. The, the, the more I get surprised at how hard some people are to the gospel, but also more surprised by how open some people are to the gospel. So, you know, That's we, well said. We, yes. we door knock the parish around our church three times a year. And, and um, it's, it's, it's less common for people to kind of slam the door in our face than it is for people to open up the door and say, come in for a cup of tea. I was actually praying last Sunday and I think you're an answer to my prayers. That happens a lot more than people slamming the door in our face. But you get you get so much you, you get shocked by both ends, I think. But one of the things about that parable, uh, Mark chapter four, in, in scattering the seed, is is the the evangelistic wisdom of moving on. You know, if if the door doesn't open, um, there's something about my personality because I, I spend all day thinking about objections to Christianity as well that I want to batter down the door. <laughs> And say, you know, here are all the reasons Debate why you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and, but you know, I'm not called to batter doors. I'm I'm called to scatter seed. And and like in the New Testament, moving on in those circumstances is is huge. You know, shake the dust off your feet and don't cast pearl before swines. And and like even in in Acts chapter 17, I love that there's Paul in the Areopagus and he's you know going toe to toe with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, and some of them are sneering at him. And Paul just moves on. Like, you know, there the, are the, a couple of named individuals who come to, to faith and it sounds like, you know, they, they might start the church, you know. And so he just kind of hands it off to those people and he moves on. And I just think, you know, my temperament is I would, I would want to stay there and wipe that sneer off their faces because, like, it is inter- intellectually credible to believe in Jesus and I, I want to have the... And he just moves on to Corinth and he just <laughs> scatters some more seed and scatters some more seed. Mm. And I, I, I just think that's a, that's a very healthy attitude to opposition, whatever opposition there is, you know, you circle back to that friend, and if and, and if they had a, a an adverse reaction to your invitation to carol services, that's all right. There's, there'll be another carol service next year, and yeah, I, I can circle back to that person. But I don't, I don't have to batter down every door that's that's closed in my face. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a tension because on the one hand, we do want to make sure that we are continuing to scatter the seed and that we don't only kind of get caught up with the people who seem least interested which you know I, I can certainly resonate with that at the same time I think um, I think there's something to persistence and um, to just continuing to show love and to be invitational with people who maybe even have been quite hostile toward us. I'm not yeah, talking oh yeah. about like... You, you I'm not saying you don't go move and, on from loving them. Yeah. You never move on from loving them. Yeah, ever. Yeah. Yeah, and just... Uh, and certainly uh, I've known people where it's really been years of of Christians in their lives um, kind of putting up with actually their their hostility um, before they've they've repented and believed in Jesus. Um, so yeah, but uh, I, it's funny that the parable of the sower, I used to be like completely unmoved by it. Uh, to be honest, I was like, oh, it's Pablo, sir. Great. And then um, I was writing a Bible study last year and I was looking at the Pablo, the sower, and I suddenly became deeply moved by it because it was a reminder. It's not my job to figure out what kind of soil somebody else is like. I, it's just not my job. My job is to is to be out there scattering. Um, and the, the the Lord is bringing this extraordinary harvest. Like even though the the majority of the ground that you're scattering on seems sort of unfruitful, that the Lord is is then bringing this massive harvest that kind of 
outweighs the the kind of barrenness or the the weediness <laughs> um, of the other soil. That the harvest that he brings from the good soil is just extraordinary. And so I, I suddenly became really moved by that that parable um, in a new way. Yeah. I remember I was I was preaching in a London church for three years before I went to to train to become a vicar, um, and do my theological training, and and so I was three years in a church where fifty percent would not have claimed to be Christians. It was an incredibly evangelistic um, kind of church, and, and they were happy to keep coming back Sunday after Sunday, but they also seemed happy not <laughs> to 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 come to Christ. And and my final sermon was on Psalm thirty two, and I was just pleading with people, come to the Lord, come to the Lord. I was I was in tears in the pulpit, and I was in pieces after the after the service and a friend came up to me and he gave me the most efficient pastoral care i've ever received he completely changed my mood in in four words he just said you sowed the seed um and i was like you're right i you know for three years i've sowed the seed okay i i can move on from this place and and the power is not in me (laughs) you know Seeds are incredibly power, but incredibly powerful. But it's this slow, low, secret power mm, that mm. you hand over, mm. and then it's it's not in your hands anymore. Um, yeah. Can I ask you about how 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 have you found sort of sharing the gospel evangelism in a in you know a post Christian environment changing in the last twenty years? So we're all of the same age, I think. Um, we're all at uni in the late nineties and. Uh, in the last 20 years since our 25 years since we went to uni or whatever how how do you how have you found evangelism changing in terms of the kinds of things you're talking about what what you found helpful what you found that actually used to be quite a fruitful way to talk to people mm-hmm. and it isn't now that never i never used to think that way now i do all the time and perhaps anything about talking to young people as well which i know you do we all do i guess but um but yeah, so contextually, the if the heart of what we're doing remains the same and is always the same in every generation, how do the expression of it, how has the expression of it changed in your life so far and change according to the generation of the people to whom you're speaking? Yeah, I think we have seen something of a shift from maybe more, um, more the credibility, intellectual credibility questions being on the front foot to more the moral questions being on the front foot. Um, and it's not that those questions weren't there. So, you know, when I was an undergrad, like Christian sexual ethics was weird then and it's weird now. Um, but I think it's it's even weirder now. Um, and one of the things that, that I kind of like to say to people, actually, when we sort of get into a conversation and I had, had one like literally yesterday with a, a woman in the neighborhood near our, our church who has never been a churchgoer, a sort of has a positive impression of our church from having been in the neighborhood for, for some time um but no kind of christian background or whatever and and was just you know asking me some questions um and one of the things i like to say about like christian sexual ethics is it's actually weirder than you think you know it's it's not just that as a christian i believe that sex only belongs in marriage between a man and a woman but that this the whole point of this is is a metaphor it, that it's, it's all about pointing us to jesus's love for his people and and so the the even the the most um beautiful wonderful uh, amazing relationship of that kind that we could have with another human being is only ever going to be a tiny echo of jesus love for us like that that actually um 
I think often in, in those kinds of conversations where sexual ethics can feel like a kind of distraction from the gospel or a defeater to the gospel, I think it actually can be a, a gateway into talking about the gospel. Um, if we can just sort of name from the first, this is like, this is wild, right? This is crazy, weird stuff. And I'm not pretending it's not. <laughs> um, but actually, my, what I believe springs out of this understanding that actually Jesus stands at the center of reality, that Jesus is the one who fulfills our, our deepest desires and, and the longings of our hearts, and, and that he's, li he's left little clues and signposts um, to what that might mean in, in creation, in our, in our lived experience and relationships. But that ultimately they'll only ever disappoint us if we put all, all the weight of our worship on that. They will only disappoint um, so I think in terms of how things have changed, I, I think there is, uh, you know, more of a front for it when it comes to sexual ethics and, uh, and obviously gender identity is, is an increasingly um, it, it important and fraught conversation um, for for Christians today, even more so than it was, you know, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, a very kind of rapidly moving conversation there. I think it's especially in the US, conversations around race are still extremely important. Um, and I think sadly i think a lot of christians and a lot of uh, churches have have done a very poor job of of representing well how the gospel speaks into into those conversations i think we've been um far too quick to just sort of defend the record of, of our tribe those of us who like me are both white and evangelical um rather than being willing to say yes actually there's a there's a painful horrible record of sin here um and i can acknowledge that i can I can acknowledge that and, and grieve over that because I believe the Bible, actually. <laughs> like, um, it, it, my Christian faith motivates me to do that rather than, oh, well, that becomes a reason not to believe in Jesus. Um, so I think, yeah, the, the ethical, the moral well, conversations. I think, I think it, might um, be, it may be more acute in the US, but I think that's, that's true across the West, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You spoke earlier about... Um, uh, there is hunger for mm. Jesus. In fact, it was one of the first things that you said. Um, how is that expressing itself nowadays? Um, because um, in another age, I guess people who are ripe for hearing about Jesus might have felt uh, an overwhelming sense of sin and guilt, mm. and they need the relief of the gospel to come to them. And, you know, that is what the antechamber of, of the church looked like and the antechamber of the, of the gospel as people are kind of... Um, ripe for hearing of Jesus, um, it strikes me that that's that's not kind of the shape of what it looks like when when mm. people are hungry today. What what does it look like when people are hungry for for Jesus today? I think it's a sense of loneliness and meaninglessness, um, and a sense that I I've done all the things that that culture told me to do, um, and it, it's left me miserable, depressed, uh, confused, hurting. Um, so I think then the antechamber is is community. I think it's it's calling people in, um, in in very tangible, physical, visceral ways, um, and saying welcome. And I think it's a um, it's an opportunity for the church to function as the church because you and I in and like. We are we are utterly insufficient, not only because of our sinfulness, but also because of our limitedness to reach all the people around us. You know, if I walked out of my door right now um, within a half mile radius, there are far more people to reach than I can reach. Um, and there are many people who I wouldn't even probably be the right person to reach them. 
but as as a member of a, a local church and a Christian community, I we have a whole team, and I think fielding that team to where um, we're all playing our different roles. You know, some of us. I, I, I'm I'm somebody who's naturally happy to go and do the like first contact. You know, come into church. I'll grab you. You're a newcomer. I'll start a conversation. I then really would love to connect you with somebody else who you might have been to the same university as or who you might have come from the same state as or who you might like some kind of connection um, and then to, to have that team be, um, yeah, be mobilized around people who, who might be interested in exploring Christianity. Um, and, and there is a deep and delightful sense of joy and love and community that comes through working as a team together. And I think that's something that we Christians are actually starving for I think we're robbing ourselves of the community that we could have because we are not out there working the mission that God has given us. Yes, yes. And therefore, the the realm of pastoral care and evangelism kind of comes together in really fruitful and helpful ways. Like if, if we're going to reach out in these sorts of ways, we're going to be have, have to be you know very pastorally sensitive. We're going to have to have the kinds of communities that can really be places of healing and, and help for those who are lonely and those who are broken and... and um, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to say to people to, to give a vision that evangelism and pastoral care are, are the best of friends, that, you know, pastoral care is just evangelizing Christians and evangelism is just pastoring non-Christians. And one of the things that that helps with is, just as you say, that all the church then becomes emboldened and, and equipped to be a part of this great evangelistic task because I, I might not be a kind of a, a lippy person who is able to have all the words, but in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter gives like the, the shortest gift list in the New Testament and he basically says, you know, some people are really good with words, let them speak as though speaking the very words of God. Some people are uh, serve and let them ser- serve with the strength that God requires. And, and I think those are umbrella terms for some people are good with words, some people are good with this deacon kind of hospitality service. And what would it look like to get these two people, you know, working together in the great priesthood of God, 1 Peter chapter 2? It would be evangelism the way it happened in the early church, evangelism the way it happened you know, in the book of Acts, evangelism the way it, it, it happened in, in those early centuries, which is opening up tables and homes and sprinkling it around with, yep, there are, there are some Rebecca McLaughlins in your church and there are, there are some Andrew Wilsons in your church and, and let's get them around a table, but it doesn't just take those kinds of speaker-type gifted people. It, it really... It, it really enfranchises, mm. you know, the entire mm-hmm. body yeah. because yeah. pastoral care and evangelism are, are integrated. Yeah. And actually, I think we have been infected with the idea that it's so prevalent in, in the culture more generally, which is that I should be sitting around thinking about my, my own identity and my own, um, you know, uh, very much kind of caught up in, in my own self-fulfillment um, or, or lack thereof, uh, my own... A uh, sense of sense of who I am, or or failure to to recognise who I am, and 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 increasingly, you know, becomes a sense of inadequacy. I think uh, the more I sit around by myself, reflecting on my own self, the more boring and foolish and inadequate and uh, unlovable I, uh, you know, I, I appear to be. Like you know, it's 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 only a downward spiral. Um, it's not my job to sit around thinking those things. Actually, it's my job to be out there um, extending the love of Jesus and, and sharing the gospel and partnering with my brothers and sisters. And when I'm out there on mission, I am absolutely my best self. And so I think there's, um, not that this is the, the, the primary point of it, but there is a kind of 
for want of a better word, a, a sort of therapeutic um, shape to mission that I think many of us as Christians, and, and actually I think even um, even something as wonderful and beautiful as, as marriage and a nuclear family can can feed this, where we sort of retreated into ourselves or into our immediate kind of households. Um, and and we've we've lost that that um, gospel oriented outward focus, and we 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 isolate ourselves and and make ourselves sort of miserable in the process. Um, when if we were out there, <laughs> um, we wouldn't have we don't have time for that. You know, we'd <laughs> we're running toward eternity, and. I don't have time to waste sitting around thinking how useless and inadequate I am. Do you know, like, like I just need to shut up and get on with it. Um, I realize that may come across as like horribly insensitive to some, and, and so I, I want to walk that back a little bit because I'm, I'm not saying that Christians can't and don't struggle with like real um, painful depression, anxiety, like these, these things that can, can grip us and, and that can crop up um in the lives of the you know the most faithful Christian who was serving with all of their heart, like that that's that's not, not what I'm saying at all. Um, but but I just know from my own experience, the more I'm focused on on working under the Lord, being a worker in His harvest field, and the less I'm focused on Rebecca McLaughlin, actually the better, <laughs> the the happier and healthier I am, and the the more um, I'm receiving Jesus's love in relationship with other people. Um, rather than than sort of turning in on myself, so I think finding ways to encourage each other in that, to draw each other out, to see each other's gifts and um, capabilities not as an end of themselves, but as a kind of mobilization of the team, <laughs> um, uh, spurring each other on, um, drawing each other out, shoulder to shoulder together, locking arms as we um, as we we engage in the work that God's given us to do. Yeah. What about, what about the vertical dimension? Because we're, we're thinking a lot about the, the outgoing, reaching out kind of posture. And I absolutely uh, agree that, you know, atomized me by myself um, is, is, is not a healthy place to be. And we're meant to be outwardly curved, you know, in, in that sense, rather than sort of in, inwardly curved. But there's, a, there's another sense, and, and you mentioned it there as well, that together in church, it, you know, we receive, you know, we, we receive from God. And, and what about worship as well? And I'm turning to our charismatic friend here. Um, as, because, you know, Sunday is not simply, you know, us reaching out. We're, we're reaching up and we're receiving with open hands mm. from a God who is strange, a God who is other, um, we spoke in previous episodes about that. You know, there are times where it feels thin between yeah. heaven and earth, yeah. and there's, there's a hunger for that as well, isn't there? Yes. What, what about weirdness and worship? Tell me about weirdness and worship. This is the keep Christianity weird thing, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think you're right. It, it's, I think the the, tem- the temptation can be, the world think this is very strange. So let's close the gap between us and the world, mm. even if it means in- increasing the gap between earth and heaven or at least feeling like you are clearly you don't you never actually do but you feel like you are and i think you need to do the opposite don't you you need to say actually the gap this the the strangeness of the church in in the sense of our union with christ and our our worship our ex, our ex, exuberance our joy and suffering 
are the sacraments are just bizarre um obviously in my kind of culture spiritual gifts are just bizarre but the whole singing people just i mean just the person who came to our church and just went <laughs> we got some feedback and he didn't actually pick up on any of the strange things but i just don't have to a hell of a lot of singing <laughs> and it was like the idea that in an outside of a football match you would spend yeah. so much time singing for joy mm-hmm. almost no matter what was going on in your life was a very alien idea yeah. and and that, that weirdness is itself I just I totally agree with what Rebecca said earlier that people are often much more struck by the power of it than they are alienated by the strangeness of it. They, right. it, it just it seems to. I, I know it's not the same, you know, but as you make the gaps, you know, you almost see the connection between earth and heaven, which you express in all different kind in different traditions. Actually, have different strengths there. That some it is very much a strength in the sacramental liturgical side and others it's a strength in the sort of exuberance and spiritual liveliness side and obviously ideally we'd be both but but actually as people see that they're like there is something about this that is quite and the number of people we found who are not believers who come to our church and then they just don't even know why they just find themselves crying through the worship as yeah, they're yeah. seeing it's, it's very rarely people go that point you made. I mean, I, I preach all the time, so I want people to listen and people to engage. And often people are interested by it, but the bit that usually moves people isn't the preaching, in my experience, or at least the bit that usually moves the unbeliever is often not the preaching. That's right. often where you get the chance to say, given what you feel, mm. this is the thing to do, mm. this is where you could come, we'll talk more. But the bit that often reaches the parts that other beers don't reach is mm. is worshipful doxological joyful sacramental perhaps it, it's it's different it's the things that you just don't get anywhere else and people yes. do give compelling speeches and arguments for 20 25 30 minutes in other walks of life but they what they never do anywhere else is the sort of corporate worship life so i don't want to downplay mm. preaching and i know none of the three of us would want to do that do it mm. all the time mm-hmm. but i think you're right it, it sometimes the greatest appeal you can make to somebody is to show someone christian worship and then say so what do you think or what did you feel or yes and they don't have to have gotten it either for, for that no, to be no often they don't and you moment. say to them yeah. like you're, yeah. you're, you're in tears and say what, what was that and they're just like I don't know I don't know it, 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 it's numinous it, it seems to touch different parts of the soul mm. and that doesn't again I'm not trying to be sort of mystical in it, to the extent that you bypass the brain but I think sometimes then the, the preaching or the evangelism or the seeker evangelism course Christianity Explored Alpha whatever it is is an opportunity to talk about what people experience mm. rather than simply rationalise the faith as if it is just a set of ideas to be transferred from one to another yes yeah and i think that the deeper that you go into christian community the more powerful that is because if i had to pinpoint what is my what is the thing about sunday morning that most gets me it's looking around the church at people whose lives i know and whose struggles i know and whose stories i know watching them worship is so powerful because i can see i'm like i know where you've come from i know where you were even like a few years ago i sat with you and you crying last week like just to to have that sense so that the vertical and the horizontal dimension are all just like smushed up together in a way that they're only going to get more smushed up in the new creation right as we together are jesus's bride seeing that um beautiful expression of God with us in the faces of my brothers and sisters um, in worship together is perhaps my favorite thing about about church just seeing that and and then um, I remember when COVID hit reflecting like oh 
all the things I'm used to at church I can't do anymore. And it's the singing is a huge loss. But it's also, I was like, I probably hug like 25 people on a Sunday morning. One way, you know, like I'm holding people's babies or I'm like just the cutting out the touch was like, oh, what is this? It was horrible. I hated it. And getting that back now to be like, oh, this is who we are together is just delightful. This will be my last comment on the entire series, I think. But I just think there is something very powerful that that call out to the new creation you gave Rebecca mm. I think is saying that for all and we've talked a lot about you've, we, I don't know how many times we've used the word post-Christianity on, on, in this conversation but I do think that ultimately we 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 live in a pre-Christian mm. age yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. that we live in an age where all the kingdoms of the world are one day going to become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and that actually the optimism doesn't come from looking at the landscape today and going mm. these are all the things we could do to fix it although I think as we've said today there's a lot more hope and a lot more reasons to be positive about that than than perhaps many in the church would appreciate but i think it's out of coming out of our sense of eschatology and a sense that mm. actually the direction of history is such that ultimately far more of the world will be christian than it is than it is now in fact the whole world will be christian as opposed to what is now and i think that anticipation both of the worshiping life of the of the gathered church on the last day but also the uh the sense of evangelistic mission accomplished that you, you actually there's no none of the, the struggles and tensions and how do you navigate that and triangulate this need with that question and this sexual ethical issue and that political dilemma none of that will be needed and i, I just think that's for me that's the most hopeful thought in the world wonderful wonderful so i guess that's a it's a good place to draw post-christianity uh to an end and uh that will be this series of post-christianity uh if we do another series we could call it pre-christianity couldn't we? and and maybe that's coming coming soon pre-christianity yeah because we really are we're pre-christendom not post-christendom exactly we're pre-christendom yeah yeah and he shall reign forever and ever uh rebecca mclaughlin thank you so much for joining us Thank Glenn you so Scrivener. much, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you brothers. again. And uh, please do uh, give this a rating, a review on your podcatcher of choice and share it on social media. I know I'll be sharing uh, the wisdom of Rebecca far and wide. Why don't you do the same on uh, Twitter and Facebook and wherever else you share these things? Thanks so much. And hopefully see you again. <laughs>